Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our podcast called The Edge. Um, today, we're really happy to have Mr. Chris Denby-White with us. Um, the introduction here was really because Chris had written an article that we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, but I also met Chris recently. Uh, I would say I bought him a coffee, but actually he was already in the coffee shop that we visited. Um, so we met face to face. We have had other conversations in the past. Um, but I guess, Chris, I guess like normal, the, the question I'm going to ask you really to kick off this podcast is, how did you kind of get to where you are today? Where did you start out? Wow, that's a, that's a really interesting question. So um, I started off, it's a bit of a weird career path because I started off uh, down in Bournemouth where I did a degree in applied theology. Um, that's training to be a minister of religion, um, strange enough, working with kind of a bias towards aid work, the streets, uh, kind of the course came to an end. So I had to find a job. So I applied for a job at the Met Police. Um, so started off as a copper. Um, they discovered that I spoke a number of uh, different foreign languages pretty well. Um, and I then got invited to apply for a job in the Intel unit there. So I kind of got picked off the street and ended up working in uh, SO15 in the kind of the terrorism division there. They then later found out that I understood what a computer was and uh, said, hey, Chris, you can you can run the computers now for this unit. So I've always been a massive geek playing around with technology, building it, breaking it. Um, so worked in that department to secure the technology that I had, firstly, to make it work. And then I thought, if I'm reconfiguring this to make it work, I might as well do it securely. Let's learn how that works. I spent my career doing that essentially um most recently back then was working in some of the platforms that uh fb would use to investigate groups like alsis aq and other extremist groups like that government service had its uh, shelf life shall we say so then moved on into the private sector sector uh worked in consultancy for a bit worked for transport for london for a while uh helping to set their stock up um and uh then most recently ended up working in the office of the CISO at Deutsche Bank, running their privileged access operations teams. And now I work for a company involved in data loss prevention. So a bit of a meandering career, but with a theme throughout is of trying to uh, kind of protect people and data and that sort of thing. I remember um, I was in a, at a conference here in Portland, and uh, one of the major topics was uh, cyber insurance. And uh, it's been a an area that uh, I've seen, and I didn't really know a lot about cyber insurance until I made this transition over uh, full time to the security side. And and um, what I learned is uh, during this conference is that Lloyd's of London stopped insuring uh, attacks from from nation states, or at least ones that could be attributed to it, as well as a lot of the higher costs now that uh, you know companies are are starting to see, and even independent organizations. We were talking to a local uh, school. A district here in in the northwest, and they were had some challenges with um, their uh, renewals. So um, I know you wrote an article about uh, this situation with Lloyd's of London. I wonder if you could kind of dive in, um, you know, provide kind of some some high level thoughts around it, and then um, for as you know, people looking to uh, renew their cyber insurance or getting into it, uh, some advice around that area. No, absolutely. And I think with many things, if not arguably everything inside of InfoSec, it's a question of risk 
Um, and I think when the news broke in August, uh, there was a lot of scaremongering articles. Oh, there's a whole swathe of cyber attacks that are not going to be covered. What's the point around cyber insurance? And I think a lot of people forgot that insurance companies are businesses like any other. They have responsibility to their shareholders. And insurance works by analyzing the amount of risk that the insurance company is taking by covering certain things and then dividing that by the number of policies that they have. I know this is an oversimplified version of the actuarial stuff that takes place. But I think in relation to that, it, it's all about risk. And cyber security insurance is it's not a new product, but it's definitely not a legacy old product. So initially what you saw, um, the uh, cyber insurance would come out and people would be purchasing it and insurers didn't really have an understanding of kind of what the long-term risks were and the cadence and pace of various recent large cyber attacks hadn't taken place yet. So I think it got to a point, certainly for Lloyd's, where they saw these large-scale cyber attacks taking place backed by nation states and that significantly elevated their risk of giving people insurance. So obviously they have to make exceptions. I, I drew a parallel recently to that old film, um, The Man Who Sued God, who, uh, you know, it's about boat insurance, where, you know, um, his boat was taken out by a typhoon or something, and the insurance company said, oh, this is an act of God, this is an act of war. And these are exclusions that you see in other kinds of insurance, pol pol insurance policies across the board. So it shouldn't be necessarily too surprising to see that. But I think the real issue here is, premiums and the way in which insurance companies come to those premiums. And on the flip side, the way in which companies view cyber insurance as a product has in its purpose, because a lot of people I've spoken to throughout my career doing kind of the consultancy work is there's almost a tendency um, to be, well, we have a choice. We could either do cyber security or information security, or we could just accept and insure away the risk and cyber insurance was never designed for that in the first place it's more of a safety net as opposed to not wanting to deal with something yourself and i think that's something that cyber insurance companies are becoming acutely alive to when they enter into these free cover negotiations and conferences with their clients they really want to see that companies are actually doing something they're addressing the low-hanging fruit they actually have processes in place so how do you see this working out? I mean, um, if I look at cyber insurance and, and you know, I, I bring in the auditor or whoever it is that's the actuary, whoever is figuring out, you know, it's going to be X, um, they're going to kind of give me a list of items. They're going to be like, hey, you know, box here, box here, box here. Um, these are the things you must do. And, and then, you know, they're going to spit out a number. Um, that doesn't seem to me, seem to me to be a really good way around uh, building a security organization within a company. Um, I know you wrote a little bit about this and, and uh, some of the ways that companies could go about looking at it to kind of reduce their premiums. Um, can you kind of talk to me a little bit about that? Absolutely. And again, it's about reducing the unknown because one thing that insurance companies really, really dislike is unknown risk. You know, they can handle risk. If something is high risk, then they can assess accordingly. And what insurance companies really want to see is that companies have an awareness of what normal looks like in their infrastructures, with their IT, with their access of their data, and that they have controls and processes 
to be able to identify the abnormal. So I think the greatest level of kind of advice I could give for people wanting to have those meaningful conversations with their insurers and with a view to reducing their reducing their policies is to is to have processes and programs in place, things like data loss prevention, um, identification of kind of misuse of accounts, you know, malware infection, those things that are currently in place. You know, we talk about these tick boxes that the insurance companies bring in, but these frameworks pre-exist that. You know, there are things like the CIS controls, NIST, and these are all frameworks to determine what does good look like when you are looking after your information systems, when you're looking after your data inside a company. And I think all that insurance companies want to see is that these frameworks are being taken seriously and not only those controls being put in place, but there is a means to track how effective these controls are. Because there's a great deal of distance, a difference between assuming you're doing the right thing and being able to evidence in a really tangible way actually doing the right thing. And I think it's the latter that insurance companies are looking for there. Yeah, and you wrote about this in your article, and you said uh, essentially uh, this could be achieved in a number of ways, and uh, three of them are very obvious. So visibility, I mean, that's that's you got to be able to see within your organization what's going on and, and make that you know available to uh, you know a system or a SOC or so on and so forth. Training. Obviously, you know, we, we need to do better about training our employees, uh, making them good digital citizens. Reportability, obviously, you know, we want to have the ability to to go to the board and say, hey, we're doing a good job. But I thought the, the last one was really interesting and, and, you know, understanding the data journey. Right. Mm. Um, you know, I, I know you do a lot of work in the DLP space. Um, but can you talk to me a little bit about what you meant by understanding the data journey? Absolutely. It's that a lot of companies have a bunch of data all over the place, and it's understanding how is that actually used, uh, by whom, in what, in what kind of, uh, what kind of ways, in what kind of circumstances. We have data. Where does it flow? Where, where, where are these data flows going? And that can be, you know, when we think about data loss, you know, often there's this old idea of it's about the castle and moat. It's kind of the perimeter. You know, data loss prevention is about stopping data leaking out of your company. But actually, that's only half of the question. And when we really want to look at the data journey, it's identifying the data flows within a company, the east-west communication of this data. You know, should these people have access to this data and not this data? It's kind of almost not wanting to throw a buzzword into the argument, but it's almost kind of um, involving in kind of the zero trust agenda, which, you know, for me is least privileged, deployed correctly um, and assessed in a real-time basis. You know, if I could sum that m- massive concept down into a small, small thing. And that's where companies really need to understand is who's accessing when, why, how. And the main question is, are they comfortable with that? And or, or are they even aware of that? And that can have knock-on effects, not just for cybersecurity, but for actually infrastructure and IT support as well. You know, if um, if there's a whole bunch of data going over a pipe to somewhere, utilizing or saturating that link that needn't take place or should, shouldn't take place, you know, these can have um, cost improvement for IT as well as for information security. So it, again, understanding normal with the aim of, determining what evil or what unacceptable is and being able to really do that in a meaningful way. So it, it's good that you raised the zero trust kind of 
topic there because it was one of the questions I was just thinking about and I guess the question is we, we we have things in the UK like cyber essentials and cyber essentials plus I mean I've been through that journey and I'm not sure I really hold much kind of weight behind those kind of elements but when we interviewed Jim Reavers for our podcast um obviously Jim from the CSA that they're doing a lot of work down the, on the zero trust route and they talked about having a having a, a mechanism to look at a maturity model within a company for zero trust so to measure that kind of maturity within their zero trust strategy within their zero trust journey mm. i'd be interested uh, on your thoughts on firstly is that kind of worthwhile and and secondly if that exists would it make it easier to go to a insurance company and say we are level one or level two and i know that cmmc was banded about for a while and and i don't quite know what's happened with cmmc because it kept changing and 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 i think that was one of the things i was looking at when i was at my last company was getting cmmc like level three or level four i think getting that kind of sign off because nist is is a little bit different but if you've got a cmmc or if you've got kind of a zero trust maturity model three if you could take that to your insurance company, do you think there's any value in that? I think there's certainly a value in organizations being able to assess their maturity across the board, information security, cybersecurity, um, resilience as far as IT. But I think the challenge really lies in what framework is used and is that framework fit for purpose? Um because, again, we have enough problems between NIST, various controls in the UK, ISO. You know, there are so many different control frameworks that all are, you know, at their heart trying to do the same thing, protect data, protect organizations, protect shareholders, protect, you know, information inside of companies. However, I think at the moment, the frameworks for looking at these are so fragmented at the moment you know the risk is yes you have a maturity assessment you say that you're a level three and the insurance company says oh well actually that level three is not something we recognize you know so i think a lot of work needs to be done in the space of uh controls requirements and frameworks first in order for that to really gain any traction globally um you know we have things like iso we have things like um the CIS controls, so we have things like kind of the maturity frameworks, but I think that those really need to be matured. And as well, I think the problem for me with tick box exercises, regardless of how good they are, is that there are boxes to be ticked and it's very easy for companies that don't necessarily want to take information security seriously to tick a box. You know, there's the old joke around the requirement said we need to have a firewall in the data center. And sure enough, there's a firewall inside its packing box sat on the floor of the data center. Thick, that's all okay. So I think, in principle, it's a really good idea if there were that maturity assessments to mean that less work needs to be done by the insurance companies in this setting. However, there's the issue of trust as well. I think one of the things I've found over the years is I've been through I don't know how many audits. I mean, we would get audited for all kinds of things. And, and I worked in an area where we sell or sold military products and, and medical products. And we would have auditors come in and check us against levels of security or infrastructure levels and stuff. And no offense to the people that got sent in, but a lot of the time they were for 
from one of the big consultancy companies and they were a graduate and they would come in with their pretty spreadsheet with their tick boxes in and they would be like, does your virus checker update on a weekly basis? And my answer would be, no, because we don't have that type of virus checker anymore. Kind of the DAT file updates went out about 20 years ago and they put a big cross in the box. And I'd be like, no, no, you're not understanding. Like what we've got is better than that box you're ticking, but you couldn't, it was a yes or a no. Did you update every week? No, fail. Well, and, and, and I mean, that was the same with Cyber Essentials Plus and Cyber Essentials and all those other things. It was like, if you can't tick the box with the exact question, and I mean, quite often I would tick the box and say yes, and then in the explanation, right, we don't do an update weekly, but we do this. And then they'd send it back and go, no, you failed. And the amount of times that I would waste hours, days, weeks, having conversations with people who unfortunately wasn't their fault, but were given a sheet to tick yes or no, yes or no, yes or no. And it, and it, so I think it would be great to have a zero trust maturity framework that you could test against. But I'm also in the same mindset as you that we already have, I don't know how many, and I've had to go through ticking the boxes on all of them. And the boxes are pretty much the same. And it is, it's that firewall in the computer room. Yes, I have one. I haven't taken it out of the box, but I have one. Um, yeah, that 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 drove me freaking nuts back in the day. It, it would bring in some... <laughs> I'll go there. Some kid just fresh out of college. You know, it's his first job. He's uh, working for a big name auditor company and he's tasked with coming in or she's tasked with coming in and asking questions. And honestly, they don't know any background. Um, you know, we were doing PCI audits and we were an early company adopting Encrypt on Swipe. So, you know, we never saw the data flow. We had no access to the keys uh, for that for that data to you know de-encrypt uh, that stream going to the the credit bureau for authorization, um, yet we would get asked, "Are you you know are you encrypting this?" Yes, we are. Uh, do you have a firewall behind it? Uh, no, we don't because all the data in flight is encrypted and we we can't we can't access it. Uh, we don't even store the credit cards on site. And um, these, uh, you know, people, just, they, they just didn't have the background knowledge. Um, so, you know, my recommendation is if you are out there and, and you are in one of these roles, do the do the research, go out there, learn, uh, you know, some of these new technologies, because this space is evolving rapidly. And um, you can't be in a position where you're checking boxes saying, hey, you need a firewall when the firewall is not really required. Uh, or, uh, you know, understand the technology. So, you know, I don't have to teach it to you or be acceptive of, you know, a, a different way of doing things because uh, the space is going to rapidly evolve over the next 10 years in terms of, of security. So you need to be on the forefront of that and, and being progressive. And, and in fact, you should be helping out a company that, you know, is behind the times and go, look, there's a better way of doing this at a, a less expensive price point. So, um, yeah, there's my editorial comments for the day. Yeah. Is that necessarily the fault of the auditor that hasn't done their research? Or is it the fault of the over-prescriptive controls that they're testing against? And that's back to the point of the one size fits all. The problem with 
control frameworks is if they're too loose and they're too outcome-based, then that gives people the option to leave the firewall in the box on the floor and go, hey, we're secured, pick. But if they're overly prescriptive, do they really address risk or are they solutionizing? And that was always my problem when dealing with um, kind of auditors and regulators in the past is that the over-prescriptive nature was, well, actually, you are saying that we need to address this specific risk. However, upstream, this risk has been taken care of by these other controls, but that was still a line on the spreadsheet. It's a hard question. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always tried throughout my career to do the right thing, to be as secure as I possibly could. And, and don't get me wrong, over the years, IT evolved, security evolved, and you couldn't always be on the front foot. Sometimes you were on the back foot. But I was not one of those people that just wanted to tick the box to get the auditor to go away and say, yes, everything's fine. I actually wanted to make us more secure and and make it more efficient and make it easier for the users. But however, I, I have come across an awful lot of people that really had no interest in actually spending money or making things any better or making things more secure. They just wanted a pass to audit. Um, and that, that that just wasn't me. And I... I've never asked you on the question, but I'm sure that wasn't John either. No, I mean, no, no. <laughs> um, he wasn't. So he wasn't me either. No. Um, I've had some of my best fights when uh, I've uh, said to people, "Hey, let's just take a step back. Let's look at the risk, and let's, you know, let's address the risk. You know, how hard can it be? You know, because sometimes I'm sure you've had these conversations as well. You know, you get to a point where you're working with people where the effort expended just tick the box and to justify just ticking the box is actually far greater than making the infrastructure more secure and you know that irony always used to both amuse and frustrate me in equal measure i i think we live in a world where cyber security is expensive it's like the wedding cake scenario that i talk about that you can go in a shop and buy a cake for 10 pounds if you go in and say it's a wedding cake it's 100 pounds cyber security tends to be a bit like that and i think some of the vendors are to blame for that because they want to make their money and i get it businesses is businesses um but equally there's an opportunity right now or i feel there's an opportunity right now that the pandemic was bad for a lot of people but there was a lot of innovation so there has been some positives come out of it and that innovation has been been vast i mean more than i've ever seen and that for me if I was still like not on the dark side, if I was on the light side and I was still kind of in a customer role, I would use that as an opportunity to go out, to look at what was available across my whole suite, infrastructure security, look at what has evolved in the last two or three years. Things are going to be tough over the next year, two years. Let's talk about recession. Budget's going to be cut. I would want to reduce the number of products that I've got there and I would want to go out and buy products that were those products that have been innovated over the last three years. And that's not about ticking a box. That's actually about making things better. And there's always this concern that to make things better, you have to spend money. But like I said, right now, we have an opportunity of possibly saving money and taking a step forward. And that doesn't always happen in IT. No, absolutely not. And I think that, you know, when you look at the history of information security up until, I think, pre-COVID, there's been a lot of layering legacy technology on legacy technology. And you're right, you know, purchasing tons and tons of stuff. And it and it's affecting the industry in many different ways. You know, 
not wanting to jump onto the skill shortage conversation because I'm sure we don't have nearly enough time for that. And that is an issue, absolutely. But also, you know, where I've worked with companies where, you know, they buy 25 different pieces of niche technology for information security, each requiring someone to know how it works. And then they say, oh, we haven't got enough skills to run all this stuff. And, you know, a simplification, you know, can help people understand and have the skills they need in order to do their jobs. But I think this purchase everything or purchase a load of stuff on top of each other, you know, that has to end at some point. And the simplification is long overdue. I also think that's a bit of a leadership challenge, too. You know, if you're not thinking about, am I bringing a a product into my portfolio, my technology portfolio, and asking yourself the question, is this going to make my life simpler? Is this going to make more cycles for uh, us to do innovation or do projects that help the business? Um, You've got to be asking yourself that question as opposed to chasing the shiny object because, you know, vendor X promised you the world. uh, And then, you know, you don't do your due diligence. You don't do the point of uh, proof of concept Mm -hmm. uh, and you don't really understand the tool, but yet you bring it in. And for, you know, a variety of different reasons, it becomes shelfware. That's a leadership exactly. problem. The illustrious find evil button that uh, many people sell, but yet that does not exist. I, I would like, I know you said about the skill shortage, but I, I think it is a topic that's worth talking about. And we, and we have a little bit of time. So let's see. Maybe we need a follow-up podcast in that in detail. But we, we, we speak quite a lot about the skills shortage, or is there one? Um, I'd like to think that, I had the opportunity to leave university. I worked for a little bit supporting games, which I love doing, but it wasn't paying me enough money. So I then jumped over and kind of did IT support and and grew from IT support, service deck, et cetera. But I worked for, I would say managers, but I saw them as leaders. So I worked for some leaders that allowed me to make mistakes, that allowed me to involved with it i mean when i went to university i'd never seen a computer i mean they were kind of a new thing the internet wasn't a thing it kind of evolved when i was at university so we were lucky enough and me and john were speaking to someone earlier on our podcast that's coming out soon about kind of growing up with the world of it growing with it being part of it and therefore not being called out for making mistakes because nobody knew what they were doing i mean nobody had done it before I i remember laying cat like two cabling cat three cabling from from a bnc replacement because no one had ever done it i think the issue we have now and why we talk about a skill shortage is we've had lots of people that have had the finger on the pulse when it came to security for a while and therefore have transitioned into say a CISO role but you've also got a bunch of people that were infrastructure engineers or network engineers they aren't going to transition into being pen testers or SOC analysts because i think actually it's a it is a different role like mm. all the, the three of us have lived through the kind of the evolution of it and therefore we've been brought up with security and we have a rough idea about it if you're coming in today fresh you talk about cyber as if it's one role but it's not it's a multitude of different roles and and there's so many entry points and I certainly feel that there are people at the top, like the CISO, and they're under a massive amount of pressure because the finger gets pointed at them for a compromise, and it's not necessarily their fault or they have budget or staff to make any difference. 
then there's this kind of big gap between them and entry-level positions. There doesn't seem to be anything in the middle yet. But one of the things that I think we need to concentrate on is filling that gap, getting people in now that are interested in the entry-level roles, having them grow so that they can train the next lot of entry-level people. And when I say entry-level, I don't necessarily refer to age. I'm not talking about the younger generation because there's an awful lot of people of all ages that want to transition into cyber. Um, but I'd be interested in what you think. Is there, and I'm going to ask you a very simple question, is there a skills gap? Uh, that's a, you know, it's a big question. I think yes and no. I think as well, it's a bit of a management problem too, in that I see a tendency for a wish for instant gratification when it comes from senior infosec managers. And you see it in kind of the job postings. They say entry-level role requires this than five years experience. And it's like, well, that's not an entry-level role. You know, because the ideal, as I'm sure you've discussed as well, is, you know, you have an entry-level position, you give that member of staff the the freedom and the space to learn, to make mistakes, be mentored, and then organically grow within the organization to be a more senior position and then train the people that they bring on them. Unfortunately, um, seeing a lot of companies, they don't necessarily have the appetite for that, you know, and again, maybe it's down to the CISO, great deal of pressure, finger being pointed at them. They need people that can do the job at 100% from day one, and they look to hire those unicorns who are very few and far between, if not, don't exist. So I don't know, for a lot of companies, if you were to say to them, hey, hire someone that isn't necessarily going to bring 100% value for the first six months or a year, you know, I imagine there's a lot of there's a lot of resistance to that, unfortunately. And I think that gap in the middle is is a real issue. And when you combine that with the very transient nature of infotech jobs, you get companies on one hand that say, hey, we really want to invest in our staff, we'll give them the best training, the best support, the best kind of uh, mentoring experiences to lab and learn. And then within a year and a half, two years, they've gone to a competitor or they've gone to a higher paid job or they've taken the job elsewhere. So there's a lot of nervousness around developing people. So I think it will take almost kind of a cultural shift in the industry for people to really feel comfortable to invest, you know, because that's the way it should be done. You know, we should be investing in our people. So yes, there is a skill shortage to a certain extent, but also there seems to be an artificial high bar to entry as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember, I'm sure I've read it somewhere or seen it on posters. It's something to, and I don't remember the exact wording, but it's something like, what happens if I train my people in, and they leave? And I think the statement underneath is, what happens if you don't train your people? What, which is more damaging. Um, I'm aware that we're running out of time or or it's getting close. Um, I definitely like you to come back again um, because we have an awful lot we could talk about, but maybe we pivot over a little bit to kind of some fun questions. Um, and I'm going to start off. It's one that's really close to my heart, uh, food. I'm going to ask everyone this on every podcast moving forward. And you posted a, a post on LinkedIn recently about I think a greasy spoon cafe in London or doing a tour of greasy spoons. And I was a little bit upset about it because I'd only spent like a few days before with you. We had coffee and you hadn't mentioned it. So I was a little bit angry at you. Um, but 
the question is like what is your favorite food and what's your favorite meal and it could be something you've eaten or something you want to eat oh blimey i just like food to be perfectly honest with you um i'm i am a big meat eater so i like a good steak um but then again on the other side i also like Beyond Burgers, which I think is the antithesis of steak, right? You know, uh, kind of vegetarian fake meat as well. Um, also sushi. I think if it's food and if it's well prepared, then I'll certainly eat it regardless. So so how do you order your sushi? Do you look at the list? Um, something else? I sometimes look at the list, but I sometimes know what I like. I'm like, uh, I like tuna. I like salmon. Uh, I like sashimi as well. Um, you know, so if you can get me some uh, chunks of salmon and tuna and maybe some shrimp or prawn, um, then I shall be happy as long as the wasabi is hot. That's, uh, that's for me. Nice. Nice. Yeah, usually how I do it is if I'm, it's usually when I'm with myself, um, I used to go with the chef's journey. So whoever's serving up the sushi, go to the bar, just let them take care of you. That's that's always for me the most amazing that's a good meal. Tip. I shall definitely do that. So I have to, I have two funny stories. We'll quickly tell you. Um, one is I had the luxury of living in Japan, so I actually went to um, the Tokyo fish market very early in the morning and I had fresh sashimi. Incredible! If you ever get the opportunity, do it. Uh, and the second one is. Mr. John Cosson, who was on before on one of our podcasts, I met through um, doing some work in the past with a uh, well with Nutanix on name them. Um, and I happened to be over in in the US, and I never knew John was a vegetarian. And we were in um, in Anaheim, and we went to a restaurant, and he told me that he'd ordered a Beyond Burger. And the the lady brought it, and I said, "Can I try it? I wanted to see what it was like." And even to this day, I still believe she was lying to him because I could not tell. And I'm a big meat eater, and I could not tell that it it wasn't meat. I mean, it was incredible. Um, anyway, we slightly digress, as as we do. Um, John, have you got a question you would like to ask Chris? Yeah, so uh, another question we generally ask is uh, ultimate vacation. I'm sure you've been to a lot of places on this planet. If you had to visit one... Uh, oh, another go? great question. Um, and there's so many good places. Um, like EJ, I used to live out in the Far East. I was in the south of Japan. Um, and there's some great places there. But I would have to say, probably revisiting a place I went to recently, and that's going to be the Canary Islands scuba diving. Because um, it's something I really enjoy doing with my son. And uh, it's just great time being at peace under the water swimming amongst um, sharks and uh, rays and things. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, scuba diving is a bit of a passion of mine. I haven't been for a while because of the pandemic, but I did have the luxury of learning when I was in Australia. And I also scuba dived in Japan. So we we should definitely talk about that. Um, Greasy spoons and scuba diving. Absolutely. Like we should have a podcast on that. Um, but, but for our listeners, I mean, we had a brief chat before... Um, we started this podcast and, and and John and Chris were both talking about bikes. So as much as I watched the Tour de France, and I'm sure you've heard me and John talk about this before, um, I don't own a bike. Well, I, I do own a bike. It's an old BMX from when I was a kid. Um, 
But I'm going to ask you, Chris, and then I'm going to ask you, John. If if you were, if you could buy any bike, what bike would you buy? Oh, are you asking me first? Yeah, you first. I would probably go for. There's a frame builder who's actually retired now, so I can't buy a bike from him. Um, called Chaz Robert, he used to work out of Croydon, made uh, custom steel frame road bikes. And they were outstanding, resilient and wonderful. And I would get one of those. And my big regret is that I didn't prior to him retiring and now refusing to make any bike frames. Um, so I would get one of those, most definitely. Maybe if he listens to this podcast, he might make you one. Um, but John, same question to you. If you, if you, because I know you do all kinds of cycling, but if you could like get your dream bike, assuming you don't already have it, what would it be? Honestly, I, I kind of do have it right now. Um, you know, I've got a specialized tarmac that uh, it, I, I was thinking about it. I was like, I need to upgrade something on it. But uh, there's really not a lot to upgrade on it. So uh, that's a solid, solid ride. Um, it's got the electronic shifting, carbon wheels, so on and so forth. And then um, the dream bike uh, I, I got over the summer, and that is the the Trek uh, checkpoint. So that is a gravel bike um that i've uh hoping to get out here soon uh in the next few weeks uh that i'm leveraging for some training for an upcoming ride in san diego called the uh, belgian waffle ride so looking forward to that that'll be in april right before rsa so uh that's a if, if you're not familiar with it it's a bit of a challenging ride um it involves not only road but uh off-road riding so it's a third on the road third on on uh gravel surfaces and a third on dirt surfaces so uh be about for me uh there's two versions of it there's one version that's 140 miles that uh, will probably take you 12 to 14 hours to, to do um i'm not in the shape right now because of all the travel and all the fun that uh axis and and the ssc forum uh provides for me so it'll be the 74 mile version for me and uh looking forward to that so I, I I don't have a, a dream bike right now. I I think I just got it. Maybe I'll get over and see you do that. Um, but yeah, Chris, I'd like to thank you for coming on. A, a great list of topics, a great conversation. We definitely like you to come back for like an episode two in the new year. Um, I wish you and your family all the best and a happy holidays. Uh, and John, anything from you before we wrap? No, thank you very much. This was an insightful conversation. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And thank you for inviting me on. It's been it's been really great. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSD Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.